Thank you. Good afternoon. Firstly, thanks for inviting me to speak this afternoon. Um, I'm David Mitten. I'm a general manager for a, a product called ListPoint, um, which is a reference data management platform um, where we uh, provide the means for people to publish, share, reuse reference data that exists out there, whether it be um, government reference data or, or private sector reference data. And just because we've got a, a mixed audience this afternoon, I thought it uh, pertinent just to reconfirm what I'm talking about in terms of reference data, because reference data represents only one means of getting greater value out of government, but it's what I'm going to be focusing, focusing on today. So here's just a, a simple example of the challenges that exist across reference data um, on multiple platforms that exist in, in government. And this is purely an example to say that uh, one system is using a code list um, coded in a completely different way to another system in government. And that's what causes the interoperability cha challenges across many data integration projects. Uh, but today, and I'll go through how this works, but uh, I'm going to explain how mapping those reference data sets together provides us with the ability to get greater use out of the data that exists within government and ultimately surface that value to, to the community in open data. My interest in open data started uh, a couple of years ago. Did, did anybody go to the Warsaw event in 2010? All news to you. Well, it was fairly news to me when I walked into an open data event and it Actually, it was in a rave den, but uh, fortunately for us, we managed to get out of there before people started dancing around in the, in the cages. But that sort of set the scene for the ODI today because people like Nigel Shadbolt and David Eaves and Andrew Stott all spoke as keynote speakers that day, and they talked about the fact that the, the activists and the students have done a great job in getting governments to start opening up its data but now is the time to start engaging with, with business to, to, to make more value out of the data. And, and you know, that's part of the reason the ODI exists today. Um, my um, sort of next step into open data was working with the European community. And um, I've been involved in the ADMS program, which is all to do with defining the asset description metadata schema that now exists there. And in fact, this point is also a member of the, um, of the semantic asset repositories that uh, sit on the join-up site in, in the EC. And we now provide more um, semantic assets to that community than, than any other uh, platform or, or country, so to speak. Uh, and finally, my sort of um, the, the sort of last time I, I stood in front of an audience was in Washington last year at the Open Government Data Conference where I was invited to come and talk and sit on a panel talking about data standards and the ability to make data interoperable from a, from a bottom-up approach rather than enforcing standards from the top down. And it was at that event that um, you know, people started talking about the importance of opening up um, data within government departments, and I'm a big champion of that. If we can get government to open up data within departments, share its own data, then actually the data sets that we receive in this community are going to be of greater value. My other interest is, is waste. Uh, so apologies for taking up five minutes of your time talking about waste, but uh, it's very rarely I get an audience like this. So I want to talk about fly tipping, which is a big bugbear of mine. Um, I live on the Great Green Belt, my family are farmers, and guess what? Every week, every other week, I try to walk through a, a gate or along a path and somebody has tipped a load of rubbish in front of me. 
Well, it's a complete and utter waste of resources, not only in the fact that somebody's got to come along and shovel up that waste, taking time and money, and to give you, for instance, um, Cornwall County Council, uh, local authority have just published the fact that the cost of removing flighted waste has gone up from 170,000 to 350,000 pounds. It's a big waste of time and money, but actually that waste is then invariably just thrown in a hole in the ground and it's not separated or organised to be able to be recycled. So overall, fly tipping is a big waste of, of time. We've then got the situation where people take their waste and they dump it in a hole in the ground, but you know, actually there is some value to that because uh, a commercial organisation can come along and they can pay to tip their waste into a hole in the ground. And then there's the electricity that's generated from the gas produced within that waste. Pit. So actually dumping waste into a hole in the ground has some intrinsic value. <coughs> but actually where we want to be and where the waste industry is, is, is all about recycling. And uh, what this has done is a number of things. Firstly, there are social benefits for recycling, not least of which is uh, reduction in pollution around the world. Secondly, there is the fact that the, um, the uh, demands on the natural resources is reduced, and I think that there are millions of people impacted by the push on natural resources globally. So recycling our waste uh, in a useful manner, not only does that help us from a social perspective, but then starts to deliver uh, economic advantage. So the recycling industry, of which is about 8 billion in the UK, an 8 billion industry in the UK, is now generating jobs. And there are four times as many jobs generated from recycling as there were, there were from the traditional let's dump it in a hole in the ground. So where am I leading to with this? Well, I'm leading to data because what's happened in this journey in open data is exactly the same thing. We have the same situation. We've got instances of data being flighted. And if you look at this, uh, this chart here, there are local authorities asked to open up their data, but actually, do you know what, it's fly-tipped, because in order to make sense of this open data, you have to put an awful lot of resource in to do that. In uh, Barnsley's case, how on earth do I find out how much money is being spent on B&Bs when actually all I'm being told is that 100% of their homing the homeless spend is being spent on administration? Clearly that's not the case, but we're you know, it takes an awful lot of time to get down into that detail. So it's a waste, it's a waste of time and resource even going through that exercise to do that. Where we've, where we've got to now is a situation where we've created a landfill site. Let's take data.gov.uk as that landfill site, which says, don't throw it over the fence. Let's put it all in one place, because at least there's a place that people can go to just to find this data and use it. But even then, this data is not particularly well organised. You know, how can I compare how much an, uh, one local authority has spent on housing, uh, in, uh, housing the homeless in hotels, for instance, when, when many of them are not, um, are not presenting that information in that way? So, the open data movement, the next step, and everyone here is, is uh, pushing towards that, is about getting data organised. If we look at just a couple of ways of getting that data organised, we can, we can hopefully start to, to push that forward in, in the demands of the open data sets that we're after. So staying with the homing the homeless theme, let's consider the, the welfare reform. 
the welfare reform is going to have a huge impact on individuals. Some individuals are their benefits are going to be reduced and the likelihood is that they're going to be unable to pay the rent in the social housing they're in. So that might mean that they're pushed out onto the street. That might mean that they are having to be uh, homed in a hotel. And you know, just thinking out loud here, the, the cost of homing a family in a hotel for one or two days is likely to be more than it would be housing them in a social housing home uh, at our cost. So these things need to be explored. Um, the, but the, the big ask of local authorities in this instance is to say, can you please present your data against these standards? We want to know admin, we want to know hotels, we want to know B&Bs. And that's a, you know, that is a big ask today. What's not necessarily a big ask is asking them to deliver their reference data um, alongside the data sets they're delivering around housing. And that simply is the reference data that classifies the information, the data that they're, they're delivering to us. And going back to data... Could you give an example of what you mean by reference data and how that might work? Yeah, so the, the reference data would be um, the, the system classification of, of, um, of uh, hotel spend in homeless. And that system classification might simply be 001. And that system classification is what systems use to do an efficient search across the database to find instances of uh, hotel accommodation spend. Does that make sense? It doesn't to you. It Sorry, doesn't to you. Really <coughs> so, so, in a, so if it was given 001 as a reference, is that all the best records or what, what does that mean? Yeah, so uh, hotel so might be 001. Uh, bed and breakfast might be 002. So when I'm doing a search across the database, I, I say to the system, find me hotels. And the system uses 001 to perform the efficient search across the database. Okay. So data.gov.uk, there's about 9,000 data sets that exist there. We'll go away after today and go and search around classifications or code lists or drop-down tables or constrained values all reference data, and you'll find, just as we have, that very, very few data sets actually have the reference data sat alongside them. That means that when you talk about machine readability, from a reference data perspective, you have no means to compare one to the other. In one database, hotels might be with an S. In another database, it might be with an L. So you're reliant on, on how people spell a particular thing, not with reference data. So I've talked about um, the importance of now moving to a stage where we're asking for data that is more organised. And um, you know, the challenge here is just how important is this uh, data in an organised fashion. So part of today was to deliver you a, a use case of reference data, how it's, how it's adding value. And there's no more important use case that, than the, the case of the solar murders. Um, and for those that are not aware of the Soham murders, in 2002, two, two schoolgirls were murdered by the, the school caretaker. And you know, the, the real crime here from a data perspective is that the information existed to stop that caretaker getting the job in the first place. Ian Huntley was known on policing systems in one area, but the, the information that said he was a suspected paedophile didn't surface on searches across the policing systems at the time. And history now tells us that 
the fact that he was a caretaker and befriended the girls that you know bad things happened. So if you ever wondered why it was important to get data organised, this this is the reason. But the challenge for the police was the lack of data interoperability that existed across their intelligence systems. And they knew this well before the Sun murders and were were already looking at a cross-regional information sharing platform um, up, in, up in the North East. And that project was failing. And the reason it was failing is because they couldn't agree the data standards um, across their intelligence systems. They couldn't agree which country code to use in order to surface what country a particular person was from. Um, following the Solon murders, Lord Bishard's report came out and said, never mind a regional intelligence system, we need a national intelligence system. And that's where the Police National Database began. And guess what? The Police National Database had a bigger problem. Not only did we have 20 regional systems to manage, we had 300 national systems to manage with different ways of classifying the same information. And uh, for years, they struggled with this challenge. For years, they would sit in a room and agree what six offence codes needed to look like, what the structure of an offence code, code was. And they, suddenly, they simply couldn't get an agreement. So the solution that they came up with, which was, a, I, I believe, was just like a breath of fresh air from a data integration perspective, was to stop trying to enforce a top-down single standard across multiple systems, but to embrace all the standards that existed across those systems and map them together. And what we found on the back of that project is that by, by not enforcing a standard, but by embracing the community and collaboration as well, that all of those policing authorities are now starting to move towards single standards. They're dispensing with local code lists and reference data standards and using those that they set up centrally. So we are getting to a stage where lots of standards are now forming into best practice from a classification perspective. So this is how it sort of works in principle. Um, the Police National Database uses 300 code lists in order to classify data. Gender, ethnicity, vehicle make model type, country codes, criminal offence codes, and so on. That's what it needs. 300 classifications of data. And if you take one example, which is gender, the, uh, the line in the bottom here starts to tell you the challenges that they had. So across different systems, across different IT applications, one system would represent male as M, the next system would represent male as 001. So when they came along with their police national database as a, as, a, as a business intelligence tool and went, find me all instances of male, and I'm representing that as M, it simply couldn't, because it only found M on 40 of 300 systems. When you, when you um, recognize the fact that there were 43 police forces with silos of data across 300 systems, the challenge was that there were 12,000 different representations of just the 300 code lists that they needed. So what they did was um, implement a reference data management tool that allowed them to map those 12,000 standards to the 300 classifications needed. And through ListPoint, not only did they map them together, but through the process of 
uh, publication on the system, they cleansed the, they cleansed the data. They ensured that there was always a meaning against the code. They ensured that there was no personal data against the code and so forth. They also grouped these classifications into contexts. And a context is hugely important when you think that um, staying on the theme of gender, on a, on a website you need to know whether it's male or female. But in policing circles, they need to know whether it's a male, a female, a pre-operation transgender male to female, a post-operation transgender male to female, and so forth. So the context of a system classification is very different depending on where you're using it. So having built their system contexts, they then mapped, mapped all these classifications together. And that mapping now acts as the translation layer for the Police National Database. It says, I am looking for a male. And that uh, code list mapping says, fine, look here for M, look here for 001, look here for M1. And the Police National Database was uh, born. We've built these standards. Uh, we've mapped them together, and what, uh, what also happens now through this hub is that wherever there's a change, a new vehicle make model, or a new offence code that comes out, all human and machine consumers of that code are notified via um, email alerts and, and web services. So the, the outcome was um, the Police National Database went live on time. Um, the outcome was that um, now, when they press a button on the Police National Database, they can surface all the intelligence that exists around Jimmy Savile. They are now able to identify that he's a bad man, whereas two years ago they absolutely couldn't because the information that was known about him resided in different silos of data. The other outcome, the economic outcome, was that using this method of joining data across applications saved the Police National Database Project two and a half million pounds and helped deliver it on time. The good news is that it, it, you know, as well as getting the Police National Database live, this uh, collaboration around data standards and, and the delivery of data standards is now being reused by other projects. So there's other police systems like the Penalty Notice Claim System that is using the data standards that exist from PND. There's a, a new project being delivered now, which is a Home Office Larger Major Crime System, which is reusing the data standards from, from PND, and so on. The Home Office Data Hub uses those standards. So I said at the beginning that my interest was getting government to open up its data internally to generate better value from the data sets it owns and uses. And we can now start to see that, or the beginnings of that, through police.uk. So, Police.uk is, is a, is, is a citizen-facing website that helps us help police be more effective in, in, in the uh, crime prevention. So you can go onto police.uk and, and get involved with Neighbourhood Watch or with Crime Stoppers, Report a Crime. And Police.uk today uses the data standards from PND and going forward it's going to be using some of the data, the physical intelligence data that's coming out of, of PND. Um, and here's, I thought you might be interested, but uh, here's the crime mapping that comes out of uh, police.uk. And this is the instances and types of crime that happen around this area. So I noticed that antisocial behaviour is pretty high on the list. 
And I am going to delve into this data and make sure it's not normally on late on a Friday afternoon after these sessions, but <laughs> hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get out alive. But the, but the point is, from, from greater intelligence internally, we're now getting the results flowing through to us. And I'm, I'm now going to touch on how we can take the reference data, the open reference data that exists and being used in P&D, uh, to, to move it towards other opportunities within open data. I've mentioned the, the vehicle make model code list. Um, this is a single data standard that exists within P&D, and it's owned and stewarded through the DVLA. So a motor manufacturer comes along and says, I've got a new vehicle, can you please generate for me a new vehicle make model code list? And the SMMT who steward that say, actually it's not a new motor vehicle, you've just changed the wheels. It's exactly the same thing as it was before. Or yes, it is a new motor vehicle, I can see there's, there's changes, it's a, it's a coupe rather than a, a saloon, yes, we need to identify that as a new vehicle. That single code list is used in far more areas than just identifying for motor manufacturers that have got a new car. So yes, it's used by police to identify a vehicle that somebody would use in a crime. Yes, it's used by police, unfortunately, to identify those that have been speeding through a speed camera. But it's also used by the private sector. So um, I suspect most people in this room have got a vehicle, and if you have a vehicle, you have to go onto an insurance site, and you have to get insurance for your car. And in doing so, that vehicle make model list is there to ensure that you're getting insurance for the right car. If that code list doesn't exist, your vehicle might not exist. And it's the same for um, windscreen replacement. Autoglass need to know the exact vehicle you have in order to deliver your new windscreen if, a, if it gets cracked, for example. So there is a data standard that exists within government that is impacting every one of us on a, on a daily basis. But that same uh, code list can be used for other, other purposes. So just, I've just thrown some examples down here, but through my, my research. Imagine an app on your phone that said, right, I need a new wing mirror for my car because it's been smashed on the side of the road. What choices have I got? You've got uh, manufacturer's original parts, 200 pounds. I've got an aftermarket part here for 100 pounds. I want a new exhaust system, and I've got a super duper one that makes my car go faster up here for 500 pounds, or a or an aftermarket part for 200. That app, using that code list with the parts around cars, just gives people choices. And the same with, with quality, more choice. There are MOT failure codes that exist. There are vehicle make model codes that exist. If you're looking for a used car and you've pulled an app together that said, here's the vehicle, here's the MOT failure codes, tell me what I should look for when I go and look at my new used car. Tell me what, you know, what's likely to be going wrong. And if it's all fine, at least you know as well what's likely to go wrong in the future. So there is government data in the, in the form of reference data that exists that can have a positive impact on, on the whole of this room. <coughs> so one of the, uh, the things that we've been doing recently is to say, we know there's some value in reference data. We know there's some value in, um, in data standards generally, but what do the civil servants think? So we ran a survey last year via, via DODS, and here's just a, a few highlights of the outcome of that. 
Um, and the reason fly tipping exists and the reason uh, the dumping of data into a repository exists because based on this survey, 78% of the civil servants that responded don't know any better and hence the ODI exists to start educating people around the fact that there are good things that come from data. Uh, my colleague Dominic can, after this can, can talk you through some more details if, if needed. So I came here today um, firstly to say look there is value to be gained through this route or more value to be gained from open data. Um, what I'm asking for and what I'm going to be pushing for is that government releases its code lists, its reference data alongside its data sets. Because if you've got those code lists, you can much more quickly map those data sets together and get a bigger picture. And that bigger picture, just like the PMD, will deliver the intelligence to prevent crime, to open up avenues for, for, for other opportunities. So I'm going to leave you with my final slide. And apologies at the back if you can't quite read that. Um, so going back to my original theme, I'm interested in government opening up its reference data internally. And I've just pulled together some information about the ICT projects in government that are likely to come up for renewal in the next four years. And if they apply the bottom-up approach to bringing data sets together in the same way that P&D did, then there is a massive saving through that exercise that government can make. So. Uh, the 20% savings on data interoperability can deliver over £600 million worth of savings from government. We then get bigger data sets more quickly. We can then make um, use of those data sets for all the good reasons we're here today. That's me. Thank you. I will openly... Thank you very much. <laughs>